I'm introducing to you a film dealing with one of the most vital social problems of our time, housing. The land, the land, the ground on which we stand. Yeah, they, they treat us like animals. In fact, they treat animals better than they're treating yeah. us. With other bills, cheap other them. The vast majority of us can't afford to buy us. Hello everyone, welcome to Britain's Got Tenants podcast. I'm Ben. I'm Sophie. And we run On On The The Button, Button. which is a theatre company and we've been researching uh, this show over the past few months, Britain's Got Tenants, which is going to be on next year, 2016. And this is the fourth in a series of podcasts that we're doing uh, to document the research that we've been doing about social housing, the housing crisis, the history of social housing, housing activism and campaigns. And today we're going to be talking about architecture, the architecture of social housing, if there is such a thing as an architecture of social housing. Um, We've got with us Merlin Fulcher today. Um, But yeah, so I guess an introduction to to the architecture and the architecture of of social housing, Ben? Yeah, so so there are lots of... um, I think when when you mentioned council housing and social housing, there are lots of negative stereotypes uh, knocking around. And that's something that we're going to kind of go into. There are a few quotes uh, that we've dug up about that. And on the one hand, it's something that we'd like to challenge but we're also looking to have a think about where those stereotypes come from. Yeah, so Merlin, just tell us a little bit about what what you do and who you are and what your job is, etc. Okay, well, thanks. Um, I'm. It's, it's an interesting question. So it's not always easy to give a biography for yourself. Um, but I would. I think I. I would describe myself simply as a um, poet, Londoner, and architectural journalist. So I, um, I, I've written for various architecture magazines, mostly the Architects Journal and the Architectural Review, um, and in that capacity, mostly discussing um, you know, current architecture and development. Uh, but then uh, I've always been a poet and artist and creative writer. So um, the last decade really spent exploring the city um, mostly on the bicycle uh, or, or walking, um, uh, listening, experiencing, uh, sensing these places and, um, and then writing poems about them, um, teaming up with a collaboration of other writers in a group called The Different, Different Skies, uh, where we host uh, monthly open writers meetings, um, which do tend to focus on urbanism, which is inevitably... Um, uh, sort of very political issue right now. And then uh, r- running architectural guided tours uh, with the Poetry School and also the Architecture Foundation, uh, where you really um, you know, you invite participants to um, firstly consider history uh, and then um, current development, which is often something that people aren't so well aware of because it's not always very well communicated through public channels like the planning process and local newspapers, and then to move on to a discussion about uh, creativity, about how cities, uh, you know, commercially and intellectually renew themselves. And then uh, finally on to um, the future, the discussion about the kind of mistakes that we're we're creating for our um, future generations and what kind of legacy we're passing on. Do you have any poems that you would be able to share with us now? Yes, I do. So I have some poems from um, the 
most recent walking tour I did for the architect uh, for the poetry school, and um, these were put together uh, exploring Kennington, uh, which is a kind of uh, buffer between southwest London and central London, very historic area with uh, quite a lot of social housing, and um, I've got a, f uh, a few fragments that I'm going to read. So um, here goes. Here, half-timbered waves, heavy with glass fragments, sound. From the lofts of Tintagel, hollow and watery. Flat lines and silhouettes drawn, sketching dignity now forgotten. Our past reinvented, studied, augmented, in the cradle river of parks and palaces. And in the end of an era, buildings plant-like grew, on the edge of our ruins, street traffic and nightlight, another new. Awesome. Thank you very yeah, much, Merlin. They, yeah. they were really great. Thank you. You're welcome. So we wanted to start off speaking about the, the ideals, the lofty ideals of uh, social housing. And you mentioned the post-war settlement and I think that's where we're going to begin. We had a, like this, uh, this quote from Bevan, um, who was the um, well uh, minister for health in the uh, uh, post-war Labour government, and also housing was rolled into um, the Ministry of Health at the time, same time. Uh, so he was doing both of those things, and he spoke about what it was that uh, should be their aspiration for social housing, housing for working people. And we've got James Phillips uh, reading it. It's entirely undesirable that on modern housing estates only one type of citizen should live. If we are to enable citizens to lead a full life, if they are each to be aware of the problems of their neighbours, then they should all be drawn from different sectors of the community. We should try to introduce what was always the lovely feature of English and Welsh villages, where the doctor the grocer, the butcher and the farm labourer all lived in the same street. This phrase like mixed communities, it's, it kind of became a bit of a buzzword, uh, I think under new labour as well. Um, well mixed tenure mixed is another yeah. expression. <laughs> and um, so the, you know, the, the idea behind it um, is like, this, this is how it should be, what Bevan's talking about. Um, and that didn't uh, always materialise, even in the places that Bevan was building, um, or that were be being built under Bevan, which were, by and large, um, like good houses. I, this was something that you wanted to yeah. speak about. Yeah, so it, the, his, one of the things that Nye Bevan really talks about is the quality of the houses and that the houses needed to be a, a very high standard um, and that they should be big and airy. Well, they certainly should be airy and light. Um, and one thing that he discussed was the need for two toilets, one upstairs and one downstairs, um, because rich people um, or affluent families were able to have that. So why shouldn't working class families have that? And we've got a really nice quote from... A lady who talks about this in a, a brilliant documentary called Their World This Time. Nye Bevan, when he was Minister of Local Government and Housing, he wanted to have a lavatory upstairs and downstairs so that when the children came in from the garden 
Our father came home from the coal pits, all dirty. Um, they didn't have to go upstairs and dirty the place. And I can remember nice saying, well, you know, well-to-do people um, often have two toilets. Well, Macmillan uh, crossed that out and said uh, that was an extravagance. And if we put two toilets in every house, then we would have fewer houses. So you get this kind of idea of a new way of thinking about um, housing that certainly involves the politics as well of the time and um, being part of Labour, obviously, um, uh, kind of championing designs for working class people and that were actually work for working class people, mm-hmm. um, as the lady talks about there. We, yeah, we certainly, um, I mean, considering those two quotes together, it's interesting, firstly, um, to think about what sounds like a very romantic idea of like English pastoral life, because, you know, is a village really like that? And is living in the countryside really like that? Do, do people all get along in quite, in quite that way? And um, is there not like the presence of the Lord and the hunt and all kinds of um, arbitrary uh, injustice or um, blacklisting that might happen to you? So it's it certainly, but it, you know, but then again, um, you may as well have uh, some kind of dream to hold on to. And, um, you know, I think a dream of uh, egalitarianism all along one street is better than a, a, a dream of an extra zero at the end of the profit sheet. Yeah. Coming back to the the ideals, or um, throughout the 20th century, ideals of social housing, we wanted to um, kind of as a almost like a case study to speak about uh, Lebetkin, Bertolt Lebetkin, um, and some of his designs. And uh, you you interviewed John Allen. Yeah, so John Allen uh, was um, Lebetkin's biographer, uh, and he works for Avanti Architects, who are, I think, fairly forward-thinking in the way that they consider um, architecture. Just to kind of give a bit of an outline of who Lubetkin was, um, so he emigrated from Georgia um, in the 1930s. He came to UK, the UK in 1931, um, and he founded an architecture firm called Tecton, and they built things for uh, well, one of the famous things that they built was um, the penguin uh, enclosure at the London Zoo. Tecton also were very much involved with um, working alongside the London Metropolitan Borough of Finsbury. And they that this particular council was very forward-thinking. They were a Labour council. Um, they were very forward-thinking in the way that they considered council housing. And Lubetkin and Tecton designed um, a place called Spa Green, which is in Finsbury, and the Finsbury Health Centre. And they were really important modernist buildings um, that were kind of, that were built um, in the 1930s, 1940s. Um, and they're very much still kind of working buildings. Um, we've got John just talking a little bit about Lubetkin here. It was just vital to get a good quality environment, you know, there was something that the challenge was really to, as it were, transfer the quality of a place like High Point into local authority living without losing the the essence of that sense of the sort of ceremonious aspect of living in kind of this, uh, I mean, I was in Spa Green the other day and just the whole way in which you rise into the block, the way someone receives you as the, 
you know, as you go into their flat, there's a kind of humanity, there's a kind of generosity in the, the way the details are worked out, which is um, timeless in a way. It's, you know, the, it embodies all the kind of key aspects of decent living. And um, this was very much Lubeckin's goal. And I think what um, you see really as his work develops is the difficulty of trying to maintain those ideals in the face of kind of more and more difficult external circumstances. And um, although he, he did some very good work in Bethnal Green towards the end of his career, um, the, the circumstances in which that could be done were just so much more limiting than in the early, you know, the sort of golden years of Finsbury, really, where things were um, on a smaller scale, the, the relationship between the architects, the officers, and the clientele really was just that much more direct. And it's, you can sort of read the history of local authority housing as a sort of palimpsest, as it were, through those schemes. You know, they stand for the larger story that was being enacted, you know, all over the country probably, but in a particularly acute form in this case. Um, and, I mean, we're talking about someone who, after all, sort of began his artistic vocation in the circumstances of the Russian Revolution, you know, so this idea that art and architecture could be this kind of instrument of social progress was absolutely embedded in his whole world outlook. So I was at uh, Bevancourt, um, which is near, uh, not far from Angel in Islington, and there's this, the, it's three blocks, and there's this central staircase, mm -hmm. um, which is um, uh, lots of really bright shapes and colors, uh, like geometric shapes, and it's like, it's the most amazing staircase, and it feels kind of like, you know, a, a cathedral, and hearing John talk about like generosity and um, a sense of through architecture and art uh, having a, a social purpose. You really feel that when you walk into that building. Mm. Um, and Tom Cordell, who's a filmmaker um, who made a film called Utopia London, uh -huh. was showing me around that building and because he lives there. And he was, yeah, he was talking about, uh, so yeah, art and architecture having this social function and this central staircase being, being that like something that the residents could be really proud of that would bring them together. Um, and as he was speaking about it, it was brilliant. Like there were um, four or five people came in and all started chatting to each other in this space. Um, and we explained what we were doing and, you know, just had a little chat with them. But it was a, like, it was a really, it was, you know, an illustration of, of what he was talking about, um, that these people were um, proud of, of this space where they were living and that it was... It's kind of elevating and, and beautiful and, and art. Yeah. I spoke to John Allen about this idea of how Lebeckin created um, housing that had an individual feel to it, yet um, you're repeating a standard. So how is that possible? And I asked him whether he whether Lebeckin was involved in, uh, whether he consulted with the local people on what they wanted, and, and um, he talks a little bit about that. Yeah. 
But I think, I mean, you only need to read some of the council minutes, uh, council minute books from their housing committees and so forth, all of which are kept down the road in Finsbury Library. And I believe me, I spent many hours trawling through that. And you see the sort of detail and the conscientiousness of um, Lubetkin and his practice of their research into every conceivable detail of how housing design could and should be developed. You know, whether the sink should be on that side of the oven or how, you, you know, where the laundry happened and whether the, I mean, there's sort of infinite care um, in designing solutions that would for the most part, be multiplied in quite large numbers. So, I mean, as we were always taught, you know, the, the, the more um, times you kind of repeat a standard, the more vital it is for the standard to be the right one, you know. And it's an interesting thing about this, in contrast to, you know, what Lindsay Hanley talks about, the, the perception of aloof architects, like imposing a vision on someone, and that's kind of... Um, so modernism and brutalism really have those associations now um, for a lot of people and but that doesn't seem to have been necessarily the case you know for modern, modernist architects such as Lebetkin who clearly like spoke to the people who were going to live in his places and that mm. you know there was a consultation process and that you know, things were taken on board um, if we look at other uh, mass-produced commodities, like, for example, a car, yeah. people don't talk about aloof car designers. No. You know, it's like, oh, this mm. person doesn't... You know, they might yeah. talk about them being a bit mean and not giving them enough space for their legs. But, you know, so effectively it's a process of it being, you know, designed, ergonomically studied, um, you know, a science yeah. based on, you know, what is affordable, what's efficient, what's safe. And so there's, yeah, there is a, you know, a process of doing that in manufacturing where you can, you can make things work. Yeah. So if you're going to, if you're going to extrapolate modernist principle of, of mass production onto housing, the same must apply, yeah. you know, it has to be excellently conceived and, you know, thoroughly researched yeah. and that has, that template has to work. So, yeah, we just wanted to move on to, um, yeah, what is the architecture of social housing today? You know, the, well, it's interesting that since the 1990s, there's hardly any council housing that's been built. So um, if you're talking about, you know, the architecture of council housing, well, it's like, it's virtually non-existent because there hasn't, uh, none has been built on any kind of significant scale. Someone was speaking to me about, like, the number, the, like, percentage of architects who worked for local authorities in the 60s, which is like something like... At some point in their career, it's like like eighty yeah, percent of architects exactly, used to yeah. work for local authorities, and then um, it was one of the first bits that was um, privatized uh, in post seventy nine. Um, so the lots of councils used to have their own contracting firms and architects' offices and various other services, and they um, a lot of them were they were privatized. And some of, some of our big practices today are actually started out as local authority offices that went private. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it was certainly yeah. The the profession itself has has transformed massively yeah. in that era. And yeah, so talking about like uh, yeah, privatization. And so one of the mechanisms by which uh, we try to build social housing um, now is through um, a provision called Section One Hundred Six of the um, Housing Planning Act. 
which is about um, developers or commercial developers having to compensate in some way for um, the disruption or damage that they might cause when there's a big development. And um, it also includes building social housing uh, when they when they uh, yeah have a build a commercial development. Um, there was a quote that I so I went to speak to Ollie Wainwright Oliver Wainwright who writes for the Guardian, um, who's our architecture correspondent, and there was uh, yeah just a little quote from him that was quite interesting that I wanted to play here. Um. So I don't quite know how, how far to go back, but at the moment we have a thing called Section 106, which is also known as Planning Gain, which is designed to mitigate the negative impacts of a development. So say you're building, you know, 100 houses, it's money that's supposed to go to things like road improvements or um, improving public space to kind of mitigate against the, the damage, so to speak, that 100 new homes inflict on a place so it could go to funding new school places or like some new swings in a playground or you know things like that and part of section 106 uh, is also to go to affordable housing so most boroughs have a policy of between 35 to 50 percent of a new housing scheme should be affordable uh, so as well as the market units there's you know up to half of the scheme should be set aside for what's called affordable housing. The problem is, again, since the coalition government came in, the definition of affordable has changed to meaning up to 80% of market rate, which obviously for most people isn't very affordable at all. Um, the council can also say that part of that affordable housing should be social rented housing, which is pegged to average income. So that is still affordable, in theory, social rent that developers are more and more squeezing down the level of social housing and saying, oh, we're providing you know, a third affordable, uh, which is up to 80% rent, so not, not very affordable. So this is John Allen speaking about um, what architects can do now with social, with social housing. Um, and I think it's quite forward-thinking and I, I think quite different. First thing is sort of morale, probably, and confidence, and um, being given the opportunity to convince skeptics that um, estates, which some people may feel are irredeemable, are perfectly capable of being significantly improved, and often at a, a fraction of the cost that would be involved if you kind of bulldoze the whole thing down and start again, um, as well as issues like embodied energy and, you know, social disruption and so forth. So I think, you know, if architects are, are capable of doing what they should be claiming to be capable of doing, then they should be able to kind of unpack the toolkit and say, look, all of these solutions are available, give us a chance to demonstrate some of them, you know, don't, don't write things off. I mean, most buildings aren't good enough to be listed, but an awful lot of them aren't bad enough to be demolished. I think the reason why I thought that was quite important is because I feel it brings us back to Britain's Got Tenants as a project, um, in that we've been speaking to people who are on estates that are under threat. 
Um, and one of the key things that people keep coming back to is these estates work and obviously they don't all, is, all work, we've, which we've discussed, but a lot of the houses that people are living in do work and they're okay and they don't need to be, people don't need to be decanted and they, certainly the buildings don't need to be demolished, they can just be kind of fixed up. Um, and that's one way of thinking about uh, housing in a slightly different different way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just quite interesting that it's Lebetkin's biographer who who said that. I guess it's just kind of kind of quite a nice a nice way of thinking about it. I guess. I say so. Well, I mean, I think the, yeah. uh, often if you when it comes to regeneration, the options that are on the table are enormous. Um, however, one sometimes goes into a situation where they've been pre-decided. So it could be the case that there is a brief to demolish a building, or it has, you know, for example. In some instances, the local authority or whoever owns it may decide that this building is, this is a local eyesore, this building's got to go. Or it might have even been an election pledge for the local MP or council who said, we're going to, you know, we promise we'll get rid of this eyesore, we'll deliver a new district, town centre, etc. So um, these sorts of things uh, pre-decide what could possibly be happening. And also land issues. So really, you know, it's the, it's the economy stupid or the expression, you know, it's finance does determine a lot of these. So if it is the case that the uh, land has been sold for a certain amount, then in order for the project to um, make a profit or even just to break even, it means that um, there has to have a, an increased what's called a quantum of development. And that means you're just going to have to build more stuff on it. Mm. And that could mean, in some estates, it could mean knocking down the bicycle sheds or knocking down an old car park that no one uses. But in other cases, it means having to knock down the whole thing and then build with massively more um, higher rise uh, development. Um, so yeah, there's certainly different ways of doing it, and um, and also different ways of meeting the housing crisis. So there is, um, you know, we effectively have uh, a legacy of uh, these sort of big vision documents. So there was one called um, Towards an Urban Renaissance, and that was from the turn of the millennium, and it was all about um, regenerating brownfield land. There's another one, I've forgotten the title of it, but it's something villages, city villages, and that's all about basically, from what I understand, it's all about regenerating council estates. The Lord Adonis. Yeah, the Adonis one, yeah. yeah. So effectively, what this... So so some people, in in recent history, people have said... This is how we can solve the housing crisis. Um, you know, build on the old gas works and then regenerate the housing estates and turn them into these super villages. You know, kind of big high rise, etc. Well, clearly, those those two are part of the solution when done properly. But there are also other solutions available. For example, self build is having something of a renaissance, not necessarily on the ground, but it is in people's heads <laughs> and off the tongues of politicians. You know, they're saying that self build is a kind of solution. Um, Again, land is the problem there because how do you get land that's affordable? Um, building plots anywhere near the capital are upward of three hundred thousand pounds, but if it's somewhere you know way out far away, it might be cheaper, but there might be not any jobs. So, um, so effectively, what we need is uh, you know land uh, in the right place at the right price that allows people to self-build. 
And then also, uh, you know, young architects in training or student architects that I talk to, a lot of them are really interested in cooperatives mm -hmm. and setting up new um, uh, entities and uh, borrowing money and uh, building or buying existing housing and renovating it and turning it and, and creating uh, rented housing. It's not necessarily social housing, uh, but it could be social housing, um, but it would be cooperatively owned. And um, I've noticed quite a lot of new interest in that. And again, that's another um, you know, kind of aspect of the housing mix in this country, which isn't always celebrated. But um, housing associations, some of them, are, you know, they, they look after enormous portfolios of property and they do a really, really good job. Yeah, there, there are definitely um, so many, so, so many options that, that could solve the housing crisis. Um, I mean, one that I, you know, for example, people talked in London about building floating houses on the river. Um, I think that's a bit of an extreme solution when we've got land that isn't being used. And I think an intelligent looking at the Greenbelt, where there is brownfield land in the Greenbelt, I think that should be you know, redeveloped at possibly higher densities, as long as the infrastructure is there um, to connect it to the capital properly. So I think we could, yeah, we definitely need a, a much more intelligent discussion about where you can build within the Greenbelt mm -hmm. and where you absolutely can't. Do you think there's any way that that, can, that discussion can happen on a political level or where there's, like, on a level where it's possible to start implementing policies? Because, I mean, the, like, the, the key housing policy that Conservatives have at the moment is to sell off more, is to sell off housing association homes at a discount. And apart mm. from that, it's not clear, apart from, you know, cutting red tape, as you said, mm. in order to let um, property developers... Um, fill in the gap in the market where uh, not enough houses are being built at the moment. They don't seem, or like if they do have a policy, they're not really talking about it. Yeah, I think the difficulty for politicians is that if they, if they do anything that actually is guaranteed to deliver new houses, if they, then effectively they, they risk suppressing house prices and making themselves very unpopular with land-owning or mortgage-holding uh, voters who stand to lose if their house price goes down. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, pretty much everyone in the House of Commons uh, appears to also own a house in London, so it's hard to, it feels sometimes like it's hard to see the other side of the story being represented mm. um, in these debates. Uh, but, yeah, it certainly would appear as though, um, you know, we're not having enough housing being built whatsoever. That's just a plain fact. And also the population is going up, and that's a fact, and that's taken nobody by surprise. So I think you do have to look at um, you know, what successive governments have done um, to, try and, uh, to try and make sure there's enough housing and what they haven't done. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it does seem like the fact that um, you know, there's been a deficit of about 500,000 homes during the last parliament, and um, also that house prices in London, for example, went up 50% in five years. I mean, it would appear to be, yes, London's economy has grown, and there's been an influx of capital during the global financial crisis, but the house price increase would not have been as high if there had been enough houses built in the capital of the sort that the capital needs for its population that are in the capital and working in it. Now, what's London possibly uh, politically could find a solution because we have a mayor and if our mayor had more power um, the mayor could you know strive for more independence effectively and they could be, do some quite bold uh, solutions for house building and they could use their powers to set up development corporations they could get um, investment private investment it doesn't have to be public spending because of the fact that 
it would appear to me to be a reasonably smart thing to invest in housing in London. Mm. The, you know, the population's growing; it's a successful city. So, you know, city of um, city hall could effectively build corporation housing, uh, paid for by the private sector, rent only, and then they get a return on it. And there had been a lot of talk about this buy to let and the idea that um, mortgage, um, sorry pension portfolios and institutional investors would would get involved in this and it hasn't really taken off the way people would hope but um i think in terms of having a, a nation a national consensus on a house building program i think that's possibly harder because of the fact that there are parts of the country where new any new housing is extremely unpopular mm-hmm. um in some in some rural areas and um and also there are parts of the country where uh, there's a suppressed demand for housing, so how, yeah. building more housing isn't the solution. It's having the right kind of housing. Um, so, so yeah, I think that I think they, they, the, the, where the problem is most acute in London, um, the, the solutions should emerge there first. So, whilst we've been recording this podcast, uh, Merlin, you've been uh, like jotting some things down, making some notes, and uh, yeah, I think you've like you, you've written a little, or you've written some stuff. Um, would you like to share that with us? Our fair new world repeated peters out. Its timeless templates truly scaled corrupting. And the vision, like an antique relic, bruised by the hopes of millions, both back and forwards distressing. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for coming and speaking to us, uh, for writing for us. Uh, Reading for us your poetry, which has been gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really interesting today. And it's been, yeah, it's felt like a really um, great uh, conversation for us to have. So thank you so much, Merlin. Um, thank you for inviting me. And uh, it's been an exhausting experience for all of us. I guess that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. a good sign, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it means we've been thorough. We've yeah. been, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, thank you to everybody who we've interviewed today. Um, thank you to Arts Council England for making this or allowing us to do this. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye, <laughs> bye, bye, bye. bye, bye listeners. <laughs> <laughs>